Well, if you have your Bibles, I ask that you would turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 29. If you don't have your Bible with you, these words to our text, this last sermon in the Sermon on the Mount which we have been making our way through. These words are in your worship guide or your bulletin that you hopefully received when you arrived this morning. So however it may be possible for you, we hope that you will have God's Word open before you as we come before it um, with humility and with a desire for mercy from God through His Word. So would you pray with me now and ask these very things of God? God, we pray that you would give to us humility as we open your word, as we see a text that is a stark warning. May we receive it. May you set Christ before us in his majesty and in his might. May his words that we will see this morning, may they have the proper authority over us. Give us not a dismissive heart, but give us a heart that is willing to look inward and a heart that is willing to look to the Savior. And we pray this in His name. Amen. If you ever find yourself in Hamilton County, Tennessee, and you hear an alarmingly loud siren, you will want to immediately look at your watch. If it's noon on the first Wednesday of the month, then you have nothing to worry about. It is just a test. But if it is any time other than noon on the first Wednesday of the month, you will want to get as far away from where you are as quickly as possible. You see, at noon on the first Wednesday of the month is when the Sequoia nuclear plant conducts its regular test of its emergency warning system. So the regulars, the locals, know that that's what's going on at that time. However, they also know that if you hear it and it is 6 p.m. on a Friday, that something has gone very wrong at the nuclear plant and they need to get out of town quickly. Needless to say, this alarm gets different reactions between locals and out-of-towners. In life, there are some warnings, there are some alarms that elicit different responses from us. Some are just simply more aggravations than anything. Think about that malfunctioning warning light on your dashboard that you don't even notice half of the time. While some are more seriously dire, like that of a nuclear plant down the road, possibly melting down. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29, we read a warning that you might be familiar with if you've been through this passage before, or you might not be. But the worst thing that you or I could do as we open up God's Word and as we hear from Christ our Lord, the worst thing that we could do is to shrug this off as routine But rather, the seriousness here of these words of Christ demand that we respond to him with careful introspection. This warning, these words, this alarm that we hear 
Christ ring today forces us to gaze into our hearts and ask ourselves, do I truly follow Christ? And the one who is issuing, issuing the warning himself is Jesus Christ. So follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. Jesus, our Lord, delivering his Sermon on the Mount, says the following, beginning in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. May God write the truths of his word upon our hearts this morning. I want to argue for you from this passage that Christ our Lord is telling us to beware of comfortable but deadly Christianity. Rather, we must listen to Jesus and walk in life that is found solely in Him. Beware of comfortable yet deadly Christianity. Rather, listen to and walk in the life that is found. In Jesus. We're going to hear these words of warning from Jesus, these words of warning to do this spiritual introspection on ourselves. And the best way I think we can do this is to walk through these words. And in, in, in this journey through this passage, we're going to ask ourselves five questions that will serve to investigate our own hearts. First question, and you can write these down, so we'll make our way through these, but 
you might want them ahead of time. Do you understand the difficulty of following Jesus? The second question, do you see the danger of false prophets? The third question, do you grasp the seriousness of the judgment of Jesus? Fourth, do you trust Jesus? And fifth, do you believe Jesus is God? Let me say those again. Do you understand the difficulty of following Jesus? Do you see the danger of false prophets? Do you grasp the seriousness of the judgment of Jesus? And then do you trust Jesus? And do you believe Jesus is God? If you didn't get those written down, I'll state them again as we go. First, do you understand the difficulty of following Jesus? Listen to him in verses 13 to 14 as he illustrates this difficulty. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Throughout this pattern, Jesus is, or throughout this passage, Jesus is going to give a pattern for illustrations that he gives to help us to evaluate the state of our own hearts. I want you to note this pattern about his illustrations. He'll, he'll give like two contrasting options, and then he'll give a clear understanding of what is at stake, and then he will give us a call to Christ-honoring righteousness. Two options, what is at stake, a call to Christ-honoring righteousness. So the two options here are a narrow gate or a wide gate, or excuse me, a narrow gate or a wide gate, a way that is easy or a way that is hard, a way that ends in destruction or a way that ends in life. Ultimately, Jesus says, those who find this life, who enter the narrow gate, who walk the hard path, they are few in number. And yet the wide gate, the path that is easy, that leads to destruction, is vast in number. Many travel this road that appears to be inviting and comfortable as if it is a relaxing drive down the coast, but they do not know that the bridge is out around the corner. As Jesus says these words, enter by the narrow gate. The wide gate will lead to destruction. The way of Christ is hard. Those who find it are few. As he says these things, there are two roadblocks that I come to that I, at least in my mind, believe we must wrestle with. First is this statement, this implication that Jesus makes In fact, it's not an implication. It's an outright statement. The Christian life is difficult. The way of Christ is not a promise of God's blessing upon my plans for my life. It is not a promise that God will not even bring pain upon me with His ultimate goal of bringing grace and mercy and growth to my soul. The way of Christ is a way of submission under His rule for our lives. And so you might ask yourself, how do I know if I'm walking down the narrow way? The way I think of it, or or a way I would think to consider it, is the narrow way is a way that is marked by repentance and resistance. Repentance and resistance. First of all, consider, is your life marked by repentance? Do you find that Jesus continues to mercifully, yet faithfully, address the harshness, the insensitivity, the selfishness, the judgmental attitude towards others that your heart so easily makes room for? Does Jesus continue to relentlessly show you where you need to grow as one who professes His name and follows Him? 
And as he addresses these, do you respond to him in humble repentance, knowing that the way of Christ is a way of death to the old sinful flesh that we all still carry in our shadow, and a way of embrace of the new life that we have in him? The narrow way invites this strange, painful gladness as the old flesh of our own is torn away and as we seek to trust Christ more and more as He does His refining work in our souls. But it's not just a question of, is your life marked by repentance? But the next question is, are your circumstances marked by resistance? Do you find that you're swimming against the current in life and relationships with those around you who do not know Christ? Sure, you aren't a jerk, you aren't uh, insensitive or rude or harsh or hateful, but you simply have a new heart with new passions that is different than those around you who do not know Christ. Simply stated, walking the narrow path while those around us walk the broad path might feel like much of your life is walking in the opposite direction of the moving walkway at the airport. You are going and going and going, and yet it seems like so much is pulling you uh, in another direction. If your journey of professed faith in Christ is not marked by repentance and resistance as familiar companions, then that is likely because you are walking down the wide path and not the narrow one. Brothers and sisters, let us be careful to never share the gospel and invite someone to become a Christian with a promise that the Christian life is easy. If you are with us and this is something you are wrestling over with becoming a Christian, and you, you, you've gotten the impression that maybe following Christ will make your life easier, I have bad news for you. Make no mistake, following Christ brings to us a joy and a that is only found in reconciliation and in relationship with our very Creator and our life giver, and a hope that we do not have apart from Him. Yet, in our temporal existence in the here and now, it can be difficult. The Christian faith is grounded in truth. It is intellectually satisfying. It brings joy to our souls, but it is not easy. It even invites challenges in this life that are unique to Christianity. So, the first roadblock is the question of What does this mean for us as followers of Christ? The second roadblock, this illustration of the narrow gate and the wide gate and the the hard path and, and the road that ends in life versus the road that ends in destruction, the second roadblock that this forces us to deal with is to understand the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity of Jesus is simply the claim that He alone is the way to know God. He alone is the way to worship God. He alone is the way to have a relationship with God. Needless to say, that is not a popular sentiment in our day and age. That feeds why following Him can be marked by resistance. Yet we have a responsibility and we have an awareness that these claims that Christ make are crystal clear. There are some who, in the name of humility, think that perhaps all world religions can be pers- explained in a, in a, uh, in, in a good faith uh, in manner in which they try to explain how religions work together, but it is intellectually unsatisfying. 
Consider the illustration of a bunch of uh, blind men or blindfolded men who are touching different parts of an elephant. And perhaps one guy is touching the trunk of the elephant, and he, somebody asks him, what does the elephant like? And he's like, well, it's, it's long, and it's narrow, and it's kind of flimsy. Somebody else might be touching the, 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 the body of the elephant and say, it's, it's big, and it's, it's flat, and, and I can't wrap my arms around it. And others might be touching a foot of the elephant and describe it however you might describe an elephant's foot. And, they, and, and some would argue that this is how you understand world religions, that they're all touching the same God, just touching Him and experiencing Him in different ways. The problem with such an illustration or the problem with such a mindset is that though it might sound humble, it's actually quite arrogant. The storyteller is speaking from a place of intellectual superiority and communicates a belief that he knows better than all of these other blind men who are trying to touch the elephant, that he is actually in a position where he's standing back and can explain to them what they are doing. The problem is that Jesus says, no, that's not what you're doing. I am the way. The gate is narrow. The pathway is difficult. You must come through me. If this is how you've thought about religion, if this is how you've thought about Christianity, may I urge you not not to take my word for it, but listen to Jesus. Listen to the claims he makes about himself. Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, dashes any idea that says to us that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. The wide gate and the easy path are full of sincere but mistaken people. And so how do I enter this narrow narrow way? What is the gate? Well, as one New Testament scholar put it, the narrow gate is actually more of a who than a what. Jesus himself is the narrow gate. That is what he is saying to us. So the question that he asks us to consider is, will we come to him and believe in him via repentance and trust, or will you continue down the, the wide road? There is no third option. In fact, trying to look for Door C or, or another path is just evidence that you're on the wide road that leads to destruction. And so as we hear these warning signs from Jesus about possible false followers of His, we must hear the warning, we must hear the question that He first asks us of do we understand the difficulty of following Him? But the second question he, asks, question he asks us is, do you understand the danger of false prophets? Speaking to an audience that could be swayed by unfaithful, spurious teachers, just like we can be swayed by unfaithful, spurious teachers who abuse or neglect or hijack God's Word for shameful, sinful purposes. Jesus, desiring to protect His sheep so wolves could not get to them and destroy them, He warns all of us to be on guard against false prophets. He says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so let me ask this question. What makes a false prophet false? To be honest, I wrestled over this section as I prepared this sermon this week. I started by trying to get to the issue of what the message of these false prophets were. And I was like, okay, they're, they're probably very legalistic, giving a lot of rules, giving a lot of requirements, a lot of, a lot of burdens to their listeners saying, you do this, 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 and this to make God happy with you. I had the whole thing written out. 
But as I read over Jesus' words more closely, it struck me that he is saying, we don't know what these false prophets were teaching. That's not what he is getting at. The false prophets he warns us about are ones who were false because their lives were not bearing fruit of God's work in them, prompting obedience to his word. Listen to verses 16 to 20. He doesn't say you'll recognize them by the errors in their message. He won't say you recognize them by the, by, by the fact that they're saying something that disagrees with Scripture on an intellectual level. He's saying you'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is speaking not of false prophets who don't know their Bibles. He's speaking of false prophets who don't know their Lord. And it's evidenced in the fact that their lives manifest bad fruit. Make no mistake, elsewhere God's Word makes it abundantly clear that we uh, must be careful to discern the accuracy of the message that we allow to be taught to us, that we sit under in authority over us. But that's not what is happening here. Jesus' instruction is to carefully consider the lives of those whom you would give spiritual authority to. Obviously, this must start in our church with me, your pastor. Eventually, it leads to elders and those who have responsibility to share in the spiritual shepherding of the church. You can continue to pray as we march towards affirming elders in our church, hopefully have more information on possible elders for you at our March members meeting. And we're going to enter into a time of our church prayerfully seeking the Lord on those whom He would set before us as shepherds before hopefully affirming them at perhaps our June members meeting. That's my hope, but when that time comes, may I urge you to consider these words of Jesus. Examine those who I put before you as elders, examine these men in, in accord with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. What you will find is that the call to someone who is a shepherd of the people of God is that they have responsibilities as examples in the faith to the church family. Not to be superhero Christians, they're just supposed to be examples to others to follow. Examine them in accord with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. But I'll have more guidelines, more guidance on that in the weeks and months to come. But may I ask you, who are the spiritual authorities in your life? Obviously, consider myself in light of these. Pray that I would bear fruit in accord with the truths of God's work in my life. Pray that I and any who would be in spiritual authority of you would be quick to repent, would be humble to seek to build up, to sacrifice for the sake of the good of the sheep, not to be a wolf to devour the sheep. But who else do you give authority to spiritually? What about the podcasts you listen to, sermons you watch or listen to on the internet, books you might read by Christian authors? All of these are good things, but we must be careful to examine those who we give authority to. How do we make sure they aren't false prophets? Well, there's not a close examination you can do over an author of a book out in California or in Florida. 
But what we can do is we can seek to make sure that those whom we give authority to in our lives, those who, who, who we seek to sit under their teaching, maybe seek to make sure they are faithfully involved in and submitted to a local church family that will seek to guard them in their life and in their conduct. Remember that Jesus is getting at their character. We know nothing of their message, and so seek to know their character. If they are irascible, if they are harsh, if they are vindictive, if they are angry, they may be compelling to listen to, but they are dangerous to sit under. I think an implication that we can pull from this is at the most consequential spiritual authorities in our lives, or excuse me, the, 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 the mess, a message we can pull from this is that the most consequential spiritual authority in our lives must be those whom we can know their lives, must be those in the local church that we are members of. But we don't just consider false prophets, and we don't just ask what does it mean to follow Christ and who are the ones that I listen to? But now we must give careful consideration as to whether or not we can be not false prophets, but false disciples of Jesus, deceiving ourselves with talk of God and of service to God, but actually not knowing God. The third question Jesus forces us to answer in verses 21 to 23 is, do you grasp the seriousness of the judgment of Jesus? The premise of this question itself may be a little disorienting, right? Jesus? judge? I thought like God, the Father is the judge, kind of in a bad mood. Jesus is love. Jesus is Him coming to clean up, uh, or Jesus came to clean up some of the harshness and the, the, the anger of the Old Testament. Isn't that what's going on? Well, no, Jesus Himself is a judge, and even promises to be our judge. Here, Jesus is warning as you feel tempted towards that wide road that leads to ruin. He says in verse 21, follow along as I read it, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If I can be honest with you, these are some of the most terrifying words in my mind in all of the Bible. They aren't terrifying because I believe they're unjust on Jesus' part. They're terrifying because of the staggering amount of spiritual deadness that Jesus reveals about so many who profess that they are spiritually alive in him. Listen to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. According to Jesus, how does someone actually know that they know God? They do the will of God the Father. This might sound different than what we as a church would profess about how somebody becomes a Christian, right? We'd say, hold on a second. The gospel is this message of Jesus' life and the fact that I'm a sinner and that Jesus died for my sins and he was resurrected and he was ascended. And, and, and so my, the gospel is this message that calls me to put my faith in him. It's my belief in him. You, you, I'm not supposed to try to live in a manner in which I, I earn my favor with God. That is correct. But Jesus is putting before us the truth that someone cannot truly be a Christian and their lives not be radically changed. 
in their conduct and in their heart. The heart cannot experience God-wrought conversion of their soul and it not lead to a dramatically different life than you knew before Christ. Don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. If you were to consider the Sermon on the Mount, so what does it mean to do the will of God my Father? That's a big question. But let's keep it in context and let's consider what Jesus has said here in the Sermon on the Mount as we wrap up the Sermon on the Mount today. Thinking back on some of the things that we've seen up to this point, just ask some questions. Do you love your enemies? Do you trust God certain tomorrows? Do you wage war on the anger, the lust, and the vengeance that seek refuge and release in your own hearts? Jesus is saying here, brothers and sisters, that He measures the sincerity of our faith not by what we say about Him, but by whether we live in obedience to Him. Look closely at this warning in verse 21. These are people who felt that they knew and worshipped God. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This leaves zero room for you or for me to trust in my own baptism as my means of salvation, to trust in long-time church attendance, to believe that I am right with God, to trust in my family background, my parents, my grandparents. They were especially spiritual, especially religious. They were in church every Sunday. This does not leave us room to trust in our giving history or anything else apart from Christ's work in and through you. If I'm honest, I am example A of this. When I was younger, I thought that I was a Christian because I had at one point intellectually believed the claims of Christianity. I wanted to believe that Jesus had died for my sins and that by believing this, I would go to heaven whenever my time came. But God, in His undeserving grace to me, opened the eyes of my heart to see that though I said I was a Christian, my life did not match with what I professed. You see, I had intellectual acceptance, but not heart awakening. Heart awakening changes lives. Intellectual acceptance simply acknowledges claims. And this is actually why church membership is quite important. In church membership, we make sure that we understand the gospel. Somebody who's coming into faith, into the church in membership, we work through the gospel with that individual. We seek to make sure that they have been converted, that they understand the gospel, that they believed this in their heart, that it, they, it's prompted this new birth in them, that, that, and we covenant together as a church to walk alongside of one another in the faith. We walk along the side of one another 
for the sake of comforting and confronting one another so that we may hope and grow together. We walk alongside one another because we don't want anyone in our church family to one day hear these words, depart from me, I never knew you. Think of church membership like the buddy system with children who are like walking on a field trip together, small children, and they're all holding hands together so that nobody gets lost. We are walking to heaven as Christians, and we want to make sure that nobody gets lost. So we hold each other's hands, we walk alongside of one another, and it even means that we commit to graciously, humbly seeking to encourage one another in obedience to Christ, even when we don't want to hear it. Because we know that we don't want to let go of one another's hands, that somebody might veer away and not make it with the rest of the group to heaven. This is quite opposed to individualistic Christianity of our day and time. Individualistic Christianity that believes and says the right things, but like I did at that one point, views Christ as an insurance policy. I can hope in heaven and know that I can pray for help here, but this attitude reveals a stunning lack of awareness in our hearts. This attitude that believes that Christ is nothing but my insurance policy conducts ourselves as if God is some kind of impotent, unaware being that I can pull one over on. He thinks I'm following him, but my heart and my actions really show I'm not. But Jesus shows us in verse 21 that we are the ones who are duped if we profess his name, but don't submit ourselves in obedience to his rule. We are not fooling God, we are fooling ourselves. So a fitting conclusion to our sermon and our, our series in the Sermon on the Mount might be for you to take some time today or tomorrow and to reread through the Sermon on the Mount and prayerfully welcome and invite God's correcting grace upon your heart. Before rereading it, pray, God, show me what I need to see to grow in righteousness. Show me what I need to see to grow in trust in you and perhaps let go of things that I cling to that are not you. And then prayerfully, slowly, methodically work your way through it and ask for His mercy. Once these things have been identified in your time in the Sermon on the Mount, ask for mercy for Him to help you to make those changes. And then seek out a brother or sister in the church family who you can say, hey, will you hold my hand in these things? I want to make sure that I don't get lost from the group. I've been convicted over these things that are pulling me away. Will you hold my hand and help me to walk this journey? This faith that enters through the narrow gate, brothers and sisters, and then walks along the difficult path, it perseveres in the faith. It is not perfect, but it is persistent. But hear this warning all the more. We aren't done with this section yet. Jesus warns us, not just those of us who think they know him, but also those who even believe that they have experienced his power at work in them. Listen to verse 22 and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look at that. Three times, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do mighty works all in your name? 
Jesus warns us that following him is not knowing his name. Even when you see the power of his name at work, following him is being transformed by his nature at work within you. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's easy to publicly serve God. It's harder to privately surrender your life in obedience to God. Do you dismiss this as sensational? Maybe a little over the top. This is Jesus said. It's a little hard to grasp. Jesus, where's the part about us holding hands and singing kumbaya and peace to the world? My friend, we, in this day and age, it's all about listening to the experts, right? Listen to the experts. Listen to the experts in science, in virology, in medicine, in climate change, in everything. And that's good. But if we're going to listen to the experts, ought we to listen to the expert himself when it comes to evaluating what it means to follow him? Let us not turn our ears and our hearts away from the expert, Jesus, because what he says to us is hard. If you're convicted by this warning that he gives, if these words, I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, if these give you pause, may I, I would love to speak with you after our service today. I'd love to speak with you and simply help you to understand, help, help to understand where you are spiritually and even how, if need be, you can lead, leave the path that leads to destruction and begin to walk down the path that leads to life in Christ. And one way we walk down that path or the way we walk down that path is the next question that we ask do you trust Jesus? Our fourth question from verses 24 to 27, do you trust Jesus? In one, in one sense, this question and our last question, do you believe Jesus is God, they serve to sum up the entire passage and the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, really. Jesus says in verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, uh, and does not do them, excuse me, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Verse 23, where Jesus said, I will tell them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, it ended with a terrifying eye towards the future. But now, verses 24 to 27, offer the promise of a hopeful look to the future for all who entrust themselves to Christ. These rains and floods are not tragedies and trials of this life as we know it. They are depictions of judgment to come upon the world and upon all of mankind, but they are depictions also of the promise that those who are built upon Christ will withstand the catastrophes that destroy the wicked who walk the wide and easy path. This kind of challenge to resolve that you will follow Christ is not unlike various calls to obedient trust in God that we find all throughout Scripture. 
Starting elsewhere, even in Jesus' own words, when he would tell those who would desire to come after him that they must follow, that, that to follow him mean, meant, for some, meant for all of us metaphorically, and even for some literally, to do what? Take up your cross and follow me. As the people of Israel were renewing their covenant with God in Joshua 24, Joshua urged them to abandon the gods of the lands that they had come to occupy. Abandon these gods of the lands they had traveled through and the peoples who were their neighbors and urged them to serve the God who had redeemed and rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And he told all those who were gathered around him, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Jesus is laying this all before us. Will you build your house upon the sand that will crumble We don't need to be reminded of the danger of storms hitting uncertain, unsteady ground and washing homes into the sea. Build your soul, the house of your life, upon the rock of Christ. If you're in school, if you're a young adult, you feel like you have your whole future ahead of you, hear the warning and the invitation of Jesus to build your life upon the rock we regularly see storms hit, and we, regularly, and we know a promise that our lives hold is that more storms are coming. But Jesus is the rock on whom you can hope, and you can live by His power in the shadow of His might. And how is He that rock? As He tells us uh, to, to, to build our houses on the rock, How is he that rock? How is this one speaking 2,000 years ago, one who can sustain us today and in the days and judgment even to come? Well, that takes us to the fifth question. Do you believe Jesus is God? A good teacher is not going to be that rock. A good teacher is still buried in a tomb inside or outside of Jerusalem. But this one who is God... He is our rock. Verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Do you see what Matthew is saying here? They were astonished. He wasn't teaching as like their scribes, their regular teachers, but he was one who had authority. He calls you and me to enter by the narrow gate. And he stands before us as the gate, as the one who has authority, who opens the gate of his life and invites us in to journey with him. He is the means whereby we know God, and he is the rock through which we cling to God in all things. The warning of Jesus comes with far more authority and importance even than the warnings of a nuclear power plant down the road. The warning of Jesus in this passage forces us all to ask, do I truly follow Christ. And he alone is the one who asks you these questions. And he is the one who warns us all of the danger of self-deception. As we conclude, listen to these words that might be a warning to some, an invitation to others, and hopefully a promise of eternal life in Him to all of us. Enter by the narrow gate.
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Brothers and sisters, beware of comfortable but deadly Christianity. Rather, listen to Jesus and walk in the life that is found in Him. The path may be difficult, the gate may be narrow, but the reward is life in Him. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before You and we ask that You would give us introspection into our hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts in places where perhaps we have been spiritually blinded by uncomfortable truths that we don't want to acknowledge. And give those who need it the mercy and the grace to run from the darkness and into the light. And give all of us who are in Christ the hope that the narrow path that we walk, this path of repentance and resistance, leads to life. And this one who gives us life, he is our rock. He is our refuge, our very present help in time of need, our very sure hope in the days and even the judgment in the future to come. It is in His name that we pray. It is in His name that we hope. It is because of His redemptive work that we sing. Amen.